This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to Davos. Uh, welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. This is True North's World Economic Forum special. Your own in-house young global leader. And wait, no? Okay. Sorry, I have been told my invitation to the Young Global Leaders Program has been revoked. So uh, you are stuck with me for the foreseeable future here. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. Uh, I have actually done the show internationally in the past, but I've never done it from Switzerland, and I have never done it from Davos. So uh, this is my great privilege to be coming to you from the land that so many people around the world have been and are utterly fascinated in the goings-on of. And I shared with you last week that clip from Klaus Schwab, the founder and chairman of the WEF, talking about how it's so important to have a remote gathering in a remote village in a place that no one else can get to. I'm extrapolating a little bit, but he said it's so important to be in Davos because that's the way you can build trust. So I must say I've been here now since I believe Saturday. So what? what's that? Four days. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm more trusting of anything. If anything, I'm a little bit more perplexed by a lot of it. So uh, what I figured we were going to do on on this show is uh, give a little bit of the lay down, late run of the round. I was like mixing my metaphors again. Uh, give a little bit of the rundown of what's been happening in Davos the last few days. Give you the lay of the land. That was the other metaphor I was, uh, well, turn a phrase anyway, I was going for about how things have been. We'll talk about the big picture stuff, the little nitty gritty things, and also some of the oddities. Because if you followed my coverage of the WEF annual meeting last year in May, you'd notice that it's just a very weird place in some respects. There are just these really odd things like fake buildings that pop up and in some respects, fake people. And this year, I'll just give you a little bit of a taste test. And I mean that literally as well as figuratively, hot chocolate. I know that a lot of people, when they heard True North was going to Davos, they think, oh my goodness, they're selling out. Is this an April Fool's joke? No, the reason we're here is because there's so much attention to the WEF online. Uh, so many people talking about uh, everything that's happening here. But one thing that I find very striking is that so often people have the opportunity to put their questions to this organization and don't. And I think that there's an important distinction here. A lot of the times people make it seem like the WEF is secretive. And I, I actually don't think that is a, a fair or accurate characterization in the least. And the reason I say that is because the WEF is remarkably transparent about its agenda. It's remarkably transparent about uh, the influence and sway it believes it has over politicians and corporate leaders. And it is very, I'd say, audacious about putting forward its proposal and its plans and all of this other stuff that is going on. And I want to just share with you one clip that I found a little bit odd because oftentimes Klaus Schwab 
has been uh, very much, I think, front and center in promoting the value of the WEF, promoting the value of the World Economic Forum by talking about penetrating the cabinets. And uh, last time it was the future doesn't just happen, the future is built by us, uh, people in this room, the powerful community. And this time he was a little bit more muted. There was this exchange that I captured, and I'll uh, explain a little bit about the context of it in a couple of moments, but he's claiming that he's never actually tried to be politically persuasive or economically persuasive with politicians before. I'm very often expressing myself, except now I have to explain why we have chosen to see. But you never have heard from me political statements or economic statements um, which are, let's say, in any way um, uh, influencing uh, political personalities. Sorry, we, uh, we, we didn't feel you got enough Klaus Schwab in the first go-round. We decided we had to give you uh, a few bonus seconds of Klaus Schwab. Uh, but here, herein lies, I think, another point of evidence towards what I just said a couple of moments ago about this not being a secretive organization. There was a press conference with Klaus Schwab, and they were talking about the metaverse. And after this thing, I, I went up and I was filming this exchange that he had with uh, this other journalist who, whose name I didn't capture, and that was where he, he said that. And I was about to ask him what I think was a very natural follow-up, which is, if you're saying you've not tried to influence uh, politicians politically, why do you talk about influencing politicians politically? Why do you talk about penetrating the cabinets and so on? And I was about to ask him that, and he had to go. So this was like the last image I got of Klaus Schwab just a few feet away from me, giving me the wave off as he walked into the speaker's room, which was a little bit more glamorous than the press conference corridor I was in. But you know what? Still a few days left to go. I may yet get a chance to uh, see Klaus Schwab again and put my questions to him. And that is one of the very strange things about Davos is all the people you run into. You know that Mitch Album book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven? I uh, was joking earlier that I might have to write The Five People You Meet in Davos because there are a great many more of them than, uh, than just five, though. And here's an example of it, because if you've ever been to a conference, you've no doubt uh, just been wandering around. You say, oh, that's Chuck. I've, you know, I haven't seen Chuck in years. Here it's like that, but it's with heads of state and heads of government. So just to give you my little scorecard here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I have interviewed today the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, the President of Serbia. I tried to get an interview with the Prime Minister of Belgium, and he told me tomorrow. So I'm going to hold uh, Alexander Ducru to that tomorrow if I see him. And if he tries to throw me back another day, I'm saying, well, no, 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 I, I'm not buying into that again. Uh, who else? I didn't interview him, but I ran into the Prime Minister of Kosovo, ironically, like uh, 10 feet away from the President of Serbia, which, if you know much about the Balkans, uh, seems, to be a, a little, seems to be a dangerously close proximity between those to, but hey, it's Davos, you never know. And all sorts of other world leaders. We've got uh, the president of Microsoft here, and I was in the shuttle
still going from the venue back to uh, the town that uh, we're staying in that I'm doing this show from. And there was the head of the European Defense Agency uh, sitting beside me and the head of some European tech company who spilled his coffee on me. So I'm now actually doing a load of laundry uh, right now in the Airbnb, which is, again, not always glamorous, but this is what happens when you're on the road and in your own Davos. You get uh, global elites spilling their coffee all over the little people intentionally or not. I'm having some fun with this because it is, like I mentioned, a very weird place. But it's a weird place that talks about very serious things. And and despite the fact that WEF wants to really deflect against criticism by saying, well, we're, we're just a platform, we're just a forum, we're just a place where other people talk. There was something that I found noteworthy today when I was walking around. It's called the Congress Center. It's the main building that the big sessions take place in. And there are the public agendas, the public programs, the things that are live streamed. And then there's a whole wing of this little space, and there are signs marking it. They have multilateral rooms and bilateral rooms that are available for rent. So these are rooms that you can book out or just presumably go and sit in. They're these private meeting rooms that uh, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg and the Prime Minister of Belgium could take, or the President of Syria and the Prime Minister of Kosovo could take, or Christian Freeland and Klaus Schwab could take. Again, I have no evidence of these meetings taking place. But there are these bilateral meeting rooms and multilateral meeting rooms for heads of government and heads of corporation to all get together. And the reason I share that is because even if the WEF is very transparent about its policy objectives and its goals, there is this whole other layer to what's happening here that is deliberately and by design not for public consumption. And you may say, well, what's the big deal? Diplomacy involves meetings. Diplomacy involves meetings that we don't always see. But we expect those generally to be in formal environments when people know that a conversation has taken place. Justin Trudeau's office will periodically send out press releases saying, here's the readout of my call with the Prime Minister of Luxembourg or the President of Ukraine or something like that. Uh, That's different than pulling them aside at this uh, business, politics, sort of not government conference and having these multilateral sessions that no Canadian voters were aware of, that no Canadian voters may ever be aware of, or voters from any other country. And the point that I made online yesterday, and I bring it up again today, and I'm going to have a video out that goes into a bit of detail about it later, is that cash for access fundraisers are very contentious things. They're heavily regulated in many countries. In Ontario, for the longest time, they were banned altogether before Doug Ford rolled that back. But uh, what is Davos but a cash for access fundraiser? It may not be the politicians themselves getting the funds, it's WEF getting the funds. But uh, $650,000 on the World Economic Forum's website is the upper end of the limit for a company to be a WEF partner. The range $60,000 to $650,000, I believe that's a year, to be a WEF partner. Now, you can, above and beyond that, pay to come to Davos. And it's not exactly clear how much individuals or companies have to pay to be represented here. Bill Browder, who is a uh, big finance, financial guy, a hedge fund guy out of the U.S. and the U.K. and a big critic of Russia, he, boy, he well, I shouldn't say boycott it, but he's skipping it this year. And he said the reason is that they wanted to charge him $250,000, which is triple 
triple what he's paid in the past. So even on the lower end, we're still looking at uh, about what? What's that? Uh, you know, pushing $80,000. So if you're a company that is dropping almost a million dollars to have your CEO a partner of WEF and at the WEF meeting and on the panels, you must feel like you're getting something for that money. And what are you getting? Now, politicians don't pay to be here. I mean, sure, taxpayers have to put the bill for their travel and whatnot, but Christian Freeland is not having to pony up any cash to be at the annual meeting when she arrives for her discussion tomorrow. But the politicians don't need to be paying because I think they're actually the product being sold. If you're, again, the president of Microsoft, what benefit is it to be here to meet with other business leaders that you could just call up on the phone any day. No, the thing you get out of it is FaceTime with, I'm going to keep picking on the Prime Minister of Luxembourg because I met him and he was a very charming man. But uh, if you, that's what you get out of it. You get FaceTime with these people. You get FaceTime with Christopher Freeland. You get FaceTime with all of these folks. And that's the question that I think a lot of these politicians need to be answering. Are you the product being sold? And if so, how do you go and justify that to the people you're supposed to represent. And I did put that to the Prime Minister of Luxembourg. And again, I'm bringing him up now literally because I'm about to play a brief clip of my exchange with him earlier today in Davos. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I was just wondering what you think it is about uh, politicians pay, or, uh, being here for free while business leaders are paying money for access to them. What do you think of that? I think it's a place to exchange and uh, you can be inside, you can be outside. The, I think less people are inside than, uh, than outside and the place is to exchange and I think everybody uh, who wants to exchange has uh, his place here. How does being here help the citizens of Luxembourg? It's uh, a fact to uh, discuss about the situation and to have uh, exchanges. I uh, just will meet now the leader of the opposition of uh, Belarusia. I met Madame Zelenska this morning, so it's not only about business, it's about uh, also uh, exchanging with uh, countries where they have difficult moments for the time. That was Prime Minister Xavier Battel of Luxembourg. Like I said, very lovely man. He had no issue stopping and chatting. Uh, the, the, the Serbian president, I won't play the clip because the audio was so terrible. He didn't want to talk. And the only way I could convince him to talk was when I said it was going to be a sports question. And I ended up asking him about uh, his thoughts on Novak Djokovic, the uh, Serbian tennis player, uh, being uh, still subjected to a number of travel vaccine mandates, notably in the United States. And uh, when, I, when I asked him that question, he was great. He said, it's not fair what's happening. And he also added that he believes Novak Djokovic is going to be defiant and win the Australian Open. Now, this is uh, the only time in 2023 you are ever going to hear me discuss sports on the show. So if you come for sports, uh, first off, you're watching the wrong show. But savor this moment, take it in, and be very impressed that I know who Novak Djokovic is. And I could probably tell you it is only because of the vaccine-related stuff that I know who Novak Djokovic is. Uh, I mean, if you had asked me a year ago, does Novak Djokovic play? 
play? Like, what sport does he play? I might have said, like, water polo. I, who knows? And uh, anyway, so the president of Serbia was very impressed by the question because that was the only thing that prevented him from walking away from me. But I will say, as I've talked about in my coverage so far, I'm at Davos this year with a, an orange press badge, which when you, as I did today, walk into the main Congress Center for the first time, it is like fish in a barrel because these politicians are everywhere, heads of government are everywhere, heads of state are everywhere, and you're just kind of looking around saying, wait, is that, who's that, who's that? And there was one guy I was convinced was David Cameron, but he was like some Swiss city councillor. So I almost went up and started asking him about Brexit, which I believe would have made the Swiss city councillor very confused. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about what's happening in Davos. I also want to take a couple of your questions, if you have them, about uh, things that are happening on the ground here or about uh, some of the bigger picture ideas that the World Economic Forum is talking about here. I have not yet seen any evidence of crickets. This is like the number one question people are emailing me and tweeting me. I've not seen crickets. There were hot dogs being served earlier, believe it or not. I didn't get one, but there were like all meat, I, maybe all beef, maybe pork, I don't know. But they were meat hot dogs, no cricket hot dogs, no meat alternatives. And there was also a juice bar I discovered a couple of hours ago, which had some very fancy juices. There was a, a pumpkin juice, there was a beetroot juice, there was a turnip cabbage juice. And again, this doesn't strike me as the cup of tea, no pun intended, that uh, you might go for, but that is what the world leaders were drinking. So if you wanted to know what the Prime Minister of Luxembourg is drinking in... I, okay, okay, I'm going to move on from the Prime Minister of Luxembourg. He, he had his moment. Thank you, Xavier. Uh, if you want to know what the president of Microsoft is drinking or the president of Lego, uh, those are the juices available to them, as well as tea and coffee. Like I said, a very weird place. One of the big issues that I've been focusing on in covering WEF in May of last year and also now is the environment and climate portfolio, because this is, I think, the most disruptive and destructive thing that tends to be on the Davos agenda. Uh, just take a look at this one clip from John Kerry. He is the former Secretary of State, former Democrat presidential candidate in the U.S., and now he is the climate envoy, the climate czar for the United States. And he had a very vivid picture of how all the people in Davos, this select group that were there, the elites are saving the planet. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging lefty liberal, you know, do-gooder or whatever. And, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you talk about saving the planet, people are going to think you're some lefty, tree-hugger, liberal type. And, uh, well, yeah, I guess we are. That was basically his point, that they're going to save the planet. And it's interesting because I shared an interview, well, a few interviews I did a couple of days ago with some of the people protesting 
the World Economic Forum, and they were overwhelmingly doing so from the left. They were uh, capitalist uh, critics, they were anti-capitalist outright, some of them, but they generally don't like that this is just the neoliberal order unfolding. And historically, it was people on the left that had the greatest issue with this because they saw corporations as being inherently conservative. And I think if you were to talk to your average conservative right now, your average conservative voter, they're probably going to land in a very different direction than the perception of a conservative voter 10 years ago. Because conservatives now, I think, are even more distrustful of corporations than people on the left are, because they're starting to see corporations wield this political power against them. And I don't like overusing the word woke, but that's exactly what's happening here is corporations are going woke. This morning, that press conference with Klaus Schwab that I was talking about was announcing this new WEF Global Collaboration Village, this project between WEF and Accenture and McKinsey and no, sorry, McKinsey was another one and Microsoft, and it's this, I still, I've listened to this thing three times, and I still couldn't tell you what exactly it is, but it's leaning into the metaverse, it's leaning into connectivity, and Microsoft's president is sitting up there talking about how great this is, and how we need to have a village without borders, and we need to have this global stuff, and I'm like, you're supposed to be the evil ones. Like, you're supposed to be the ones that everyone hates. But uh, corporate leaders have just decided to take the pendulum in the other direction and now bend over backwards trying to endear themselves with the new woke overlords. And it's consumers who end up suffering because no matter what, it's corporations and politicians that are sitting in these closed-door meetings deciding what they want to do, and they come out with these announcements and we were like, where, where did this come from? How did, how did we get this? I never voted for this. And it's because World Economic Forum has positioned itself as being the table at which meetings take place. And it's been a tremendous way for them to get money. Like I said, it's big bucks here. You look at just, I, I've hosted events before, so I know how much things cost, especially when you use convention centers and conference centers. And this is an expensive event. This is something that probably costs more than most official international multilateral summits do. And it's all being done by a private organization, a think tank that tends to masquerade us and be treated as an intergovernmental organization. And you don't need to delve into conspiracy theories to have issues with that, to have issues with this cozying up between political leaders and business leaders. So I wanna take a few questions from you, as I mentioned. One that I've gotten a lot of people asking about is, uh, you know, apparently Klaus Schwab was sick and George Soros was sick and they weren't coming. Uh, this was not accurate. What happened was George Soros said he had a prior commitment speaking at some security summit. Klaus Schwab uh, was always gonna be here. He spoke uh, Monday night, he spoke uh, this morning. He's on track to be speaking later in the week as well. Uh, so no issues there. Uh, Christian Freeland, it sounded like, was in Canada yesterday and maybe just flew over. So, I mean, maybe she's arrived here. I haven't actually seen her, uh, but she is still on the schedule to be speaking tomorrow. So I'm going to be going to uh, that and maybe we'll have a turnip cabbage juice with Christian Freeland and we'll all uh, sit back and she'll be very candid about some of the questions that I know many of you have wanted me to ask her. And well, the problem with these things is that not everyone is as kind as the prime minister of that European country I said I wouldn't name again. Uh, some of them, you just get your one question and you've got to make it good because they're going to run away and they might answer it before they run away. Uh, whereas others will be very convivial about it. 
But to go back to the green energy stuff, and I shared that clip from John Kerry for a reason, because there are, are some fairly concrete proposals that are being put forward that we know politicians in Canada and other Western countries are going to want to heed. Now, this is Nagar Woods, who is a president of Oxford University, and I believe she is the one who a few years ago or a couple of years ago at a WEP event was talking about how great it is that all of the elites trust each other because they can get so much done, but the rest of the world doesn't trust the elites, and that's not good. That was this woman, so she's a bit of a mainstay at World Economic Forum events. Uh, but she was very transparent that we need a real carbon tax and we need it to be in every country around the world. So what is, what is really required now on the energy transition? And the thing that's missing is clear permanent government goalposts. The one minimum thing that governments need to do, whether it's the Chinese government, the European <coughs> Union government, African governments or the American government, and that's to set the rules that create an ecosystem for every company in the world to then make excellent decisions on the energy transition. You know, first, obviously, a carbon price, not a pretend price, but a real carbon price that, that companies can know is not going to change. Companies need to know that the goalposts won't shift every year or every three years or every election cycle. So and I think that's the, that's the one thing about the energy transition that we now absolutely have to set our minds to. We shouldn't let it become a partisan football. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I like that that is the obviously. Like, it's not even a question. It's not even a consideration. It's not one of many proposals. It's, well, obviously, we need a global carbon price, and not one of these ones that some conservative politician might come in and scrap, but we need one that's going to stay there, it's going to be real, it's going to be big, and it's going to be in Europe, and it's going to be in the UK, and in Canada, and the US, and China, and India, and all of that. And that's the fascinating thing here. I mean, there were probably a dozen discussions today and especially if you lump in the couple that took place yesterday when they were easing into it, that were about climate or the environment in some way, either a very uh, deliberate in your face way or something that was a little bit more uh, nuanced. And some of them were very open about the fact that they were advocating a just transition. And this is that nifty language uh, right out of the climate accords on transitioning away from the oil and gas sector, transitioning away from fossil fuels. And it's so dangerous because uh, oil companies are not represented here. Now, whether that's by choice of the oil companies or whether it's because the World Economic Forum isn't interested in hearing from many traditional energy companies, uh, it's clear that everyone here is singing from the same songbook with a couple of exceptions. And I want to give honorable mention to a couple of people that push back against this. One of them was Hungary's foreign minister. Now, Hungary right now is obviously dealing with its own 
energy issues. It's one of the only countries in Europe that is still fairly reliant on Russian energy. And I, I, I would venture a guess to say unapologetically so. But also Niall Ferguson. Now, I've got a lot of time for Niall Ferguson. I usually uh, defer to him more for his wisdom as a historian than anything else. But he had some very good comments about the failure of green energy policies. And he actually touches on the elephant in the room in a way that no one else at Davos that I've seen so far has. So Dr. Ferguson, why is it you think a lot of the green energy proposals we've seen so far have not really been all that effective? Well, it's a little bit like economic planning through the ages. If the US government, or for that matter, the European Union mandates a transition to so-called renewables, without thinking through the unintended consequences of that kind of central planning, you get what we've seen in the last two years. You could call it greenflation, where prices have soared in practice. Putting a price on carbon is not something that consumers mm. were ready for. So even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you could see some of the problems playing out. It's very hard to get to so-called net zero. Truth, the world continues to need hydrocarbons, and cutting down the supply uh, of hydrocarbons is just a recipe for higher energy prices. That's not politically sustainable in, in democracies. So you can see why this uh, enterprise has run into trouble, and I think that was predictable. Do you think that the problem is the specific goal, or is it that idea, as Hayek wrote about, that you just can't central plan, centrally plan something like that uh, as government? Well, I think the solutions to the problem of, of climate change or global warming, which I certainly uh, don't deny, will come from technological innovation. It's technological innovation that's made solar so much more efficient uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, the idea that central governments, or for that matter a world government of the sort that some people at Davos dream of, could somehow uh, bring that about, I think is at, at odds with historical experience. So my sense is that the fears of a climate catastrophe today are a little bit like fears of a population catastrophe back in the 1970s. They're the kind of uh, nightmares of the end of the world that, that technocrats, uh, educated elites are often drawn towards. My sense is that we will in fact gradually transition to more efficient uh, energy. We've been doing that uh, in any case for, for decades. I mean, if one simply looks at the reductions that have already happened yeah. in emissions in Europe and North America, that wasn't because of government mandates. The big problem is still China. If you look at all the increase uh, in carbon dioxide emissions since Greta Thunberg was born, about two thirds is China and about 85% of the increase in, in coal consumption. And nobody here ever has an answer to the question, how do you constrain China? How do you make China honor its pledges? Mm. Until there's a good answer to that question, there's clearly not going to be a, a reduction in, in global warming. So, Dr. Ferguson, why is it you think a lot of the... Preach it, Dr. Ferguson. Absolutely spot on. And again, I won't hold the fact that he has a white badge against him because he's actually using his white badge for good and not for evil when he comes and speaks truth to power in a very real way. And it's interesting. I mean, Xi Jinping has been a featured guest of World Economic Forum's past, for a past. My, uh, fr my friend Eva uh, is uh, surely like uh, jumping at her screen at me that I misused a Latin plural, the World Economic Fora uh, past. And the fascinating thing is that somehow has not led to all of this global cooperation that we are all supposed to see conquer the world's crises. That hasn't happened, having Putin here in the past and having Xi Jinping here in the past and having the Vice Premier of China giving a keynote speech today about, believe it or not, market liberalization. 
Yes, the vice premier of China spoke at Davos about market liberalization, the communist country of China, where there's no such thing as a private sector company that doesn't have the government's tentacles in it in some way uh, to varying degrees, but always to some degree. And he was speaking about market liberalization. So uh, this is the wackiness of Davos in full form, that we're all just supposed to go along with this and accept that this is normal. I promised some lighter fare, so I want to throw to this segment here, which again, I've let in with several minutes, maybe like half an hour of serious stuff. So you know that I actually am doing serious work here, but you've got to point out the weird lighthearted stuff as well. Okay, we're here covering the serious business. I don't want this segment to take away from that, but we also have to point out some of the strange oddities of Davos, and there are many of them. One of the weirdest is that like every 30 feet, someone is just thrusting a hot chocolate into your hand. Now, my New Year's resolution to eat well and drink well was going very well until I got to Davos. You walk down the street, the city of Zurich is giving you hot chocolate. The United Arab Emirates are giving you hot chocolate. The Saudi Cafe is giving you hot chocolate. The World Economic Forum is giving you hot chocolate. And Meta is giving you hot chocolate. So I've tried to do the rounds here and get a sense of all of the hot cocoa that Davos has to offer. I've got to say, Zurich let me down. I expected from Switzerland, the city of Zurich, to have lovely hot chocolate. They didn't make theirs with milk, they did it with water. Now, normally that might be okay, but they're up against some pretty steep competition here. The UAE, I have walked by that hot chocolate stand like five times and they are sold out every time. So they might actually be the best hot chocolate in all of Davos, but I haven't been able to check it out just yet. Saudi Arabia, pretty good. They went a little bit experimental with it. They had some lovely cardamom and cinnamon. I got a few bites before they threw us out for filming, but uh, we won't hold that against them in this video. We did that in another one. I've got to say though, the top hot chocolate in all of Davos came courtesy of Facebook's parent company, Meta. Just look at this here. You, you, she asked if I wanted everything on it. Everything in it? Yes, please. Sprinkles? Sure. Marshmallow? Well, I said everything, so I feel I'm beholden yeah, to what everything is, but yeah. everything seems to be a large category now. And, and ju- just like here we have like whipped cream. We've got a branded Meta wafer. So the hot chocolate is uh, uh, not coming without a cost. I'm happy to advertise for the purposes of this segment. And she literally took a blowtorch to the marshmallow. The Saudis didn't do that, the Emiratis didn't do that, and Zurich didn't do that. So I've got to say for the Davos hot chocolate game, Facebook takes the win. (laughs) Globalism and diplomacy through hot chocolate. I've uh, probably had like six or seven of them because I had had to like, you know, try them. You want to give them a true, honest, fair critique. I was on uh, the actor and comedian Russell Brand's podcast last night, and I mentioned just briefly the uh, hot chocolate, and he was like worried that the hot chocolate was going to convert me to becoming a true WEF globalist. It's like, uh, who knows what they're putting in the hot chocolate, but uh, so far, so good. I'm doing it in a very dispassionate, analytical way, and I'm not letting the hot chocolate deter me from my mission. Uh, Let's take some of your questions here. Clyde has uh, one here. Have you seen the WEF private police force that was reported on last year. So no, I haven't seen them yet, but there are these really weird World Economic Forum police patches that some of the volunteer police officers that come in from all over Switzerland, and I believe outside of Switzerland too, if memory serves, 
uh, that some of them wear. And, and But there's no such thing as a WEF police force. So these are commemorative patches to just honor them being here covering this and working security on this, but it makes it look like Klaus Schwab has his own police force. And I forget who it was. I believe it was someone with the Rebel crew was taking a picture of one yesterday. And the guy said, oh, no, 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 it's too controversial. And then eventually let them take a picture as long as his face wasn't in it. But I haven't seen them yet. Uh, Gary writes, please ask Christian Freeland how she got there in a sustainable net zero manner. I would like to. And in fact, tomorrow, I would like to ask John Kerry that very same question because John Kerry, I think, has a carbon footprint that is larger than that of a commercial air pilot. He flies everywhere. And in the U.S., everyone has an entourage. Everyone seems to have access to a government plane. So John Kerry will take private jets, uh, to my knowledge, to pretty much any global warming summit he goes to to tell everyone that they shouldn't have a lot of air travel. Uh, so I don't exactly know how he got here, but I bet he wasn't flying commercial and I bet he wasn't flying economy. And I don't know if I shared, I think I tweeted about it. When you register to come here as a journalist or a participant, uh, the WEF actually quizzes you about your carbon emissions on the drive here or the flight here, basically. They ask where you were flying from, which class of service you were flying from, if you're buying carbon offsets. Now, our uh, COO, William, didn't want to splurge for the carbon offsets. So this has been a high emissions trip all around. And, you know, I... Those uh, hot chocolates are getting cooked on something that surely emits something. So who knows? Maybe the hot chocolate will be the next thing to go here. Uh, <laughs> Rob writes, who has the best hot chocolate? Like I said, I recorded that video a few hours ago. And at the time, uh, Facebook or Meta was the reigning champ. And no one has dethroned them just yet. But the caveat there is that I haven't yet had the United Arab Emirates hot chocolate. And I have uh, another question here from Lisa who says, what are you most looking forward to covering in the days ahead? Uh, to be honest, I don't even have an answer to that question, Lisa, because one of the nature, one of the things about Davos is that you never actually know what you're going to see. So I'm going to be monitoring the official program and the official agenda, and we're putting out clips from that all day on True North's social media platforms. But I think generally speaking, it's what's happening on the sidelines. I mean, I would love to see, for example in those bilateral or trilateral rooms uh, that they have. I would love to see two people going in there. I'd love to see, oh, as uh, Christian Freeland and the vice premier of China are going into the bilateral room. I don't know what's happening there. And I think that would be very interesting to see. So uh, I'll walk around. I think sometimes just seeing who's there and seeing who's talking and seeing who's not talking can be one of the valuable things. But if you have any questions that you want me to put to some of the elites here, either specific individuals or more general ones, please do. Uh, any politician I see, I want to ask them about cash for access. And to be honest, I should probably pull aside some corporate leaders and say, what is it you get out of being here? And try to get past the talking points. What is it? Where is the ROI? Where's the benefit? Let's assume you're not dumb people. Let's assume you're not unwise with your money. Where is your ROI? Uh, let's see. Oh, Trish Ann writes, are you able to go into all of the sessions? So, okay. I didn't want to tell this story, but I figure I should in the interest of honesty. So I was accredited this year, which means technically I was allowed to go 
almost everywhere. There are some areas that the press can't go, but that's pretty reasonable for an event like this. And everywhere you go, you have to scan these things. You have to scan in, you have to scan out, and you, they, they have all of these security checkpoints. And when you scan, the light turns green if you can go or red if you can't. And I reported that if you have a negative or if you don't take a COVID test when you get here, they won't let your badge go green. And if you have a positive COVID test, if the test you do is positive, then your badge is deactivated and you don't actually get to go around. So I passed my PCR test, yay, so stupid. Uh, but COVID, by the way, doesn't exist here. No one wears masks, uh, no one's even talking about it. Everyone's moved on from it as they should, except for just that lingering PCR requirement. But there, I was trying to go into the Congress Center this morning and I was getting like a red light and they're saying, oh, your badge is outdated. You can only come after 11. And then I say, okay, that's weird, whatever. And then I come back at 11 and they say, oh, your badge is out of date. You can only come back at one. And then I go back at one and they, and this is just for the main conference center. Now I was able to go into the media lounge and the press conference area and stuff like that. And then I go back at one and they say, oh, your badge is inactive. It says it doesn't work until four. And I'm like, well, if they keep doing this for the whole day, there eventually isn't going to be anything in the Congress center. So I was able to get it sorted out. And it wasn't until later this afternoon that I actually uh, was able to get into the Congress center. There was some skullduggery with my security badge. And I believe it's been rectified for the rest of the week. So now I am allowed to go into the main Congress Center. Now, some of the sessions have capacity restrictions and you can't always go in because they only have a certain number of media seats available. But this brings me to one of the most revealing things that I've learned being here. And this is something that you don't actually get in the live stream. You couldn't get this by not being here. And that is that when the world leaders are speaking, you imagine they're speaking to like the UN chamber, they're speaking to the prime minister of this country, the president of this country, the king of here, the queen of there. You imagine they're speaking to all of the business CEOs and executives and NGO leaders. And I walked into one session, it was the first one going on when I got there, and it was a keynote address by the Prime Minister of Spain. Now, Spain's not a G7 country, but it's still a relatively important country, I'd say. It's a mainstay in Europe. It's not that far from where we are now. The Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez was speaking, and this was the room. It was pretty much empty. I know it's very dark there, but if you look across, you'll see that, like, about 80% of the seats are just empty. They're speaking to an empty room. And that is, I think, one of the most fascinating developments. And if you ever watch political speeches in like the House of Commons or the House of Representatives in the US, you'll notice it's very similar. They're actually speaking to nobody. They're speaking in an empty room and you're made to believe that there's this grand oration is taking place before a large audience, but it just isn't happening in the least. Uh, we've got time for one more question here. This one is from uh, Philip, or it might be Felipe or Philippe. I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Philippe, I believe, says, which other Canadian media outlets are there? Why is it important for you to be there? Uh, so far, uh, Rebel is here, and they have a crew of about six, including a couple of folks from the United Kingdom. And uh, there is uh, the editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail is here, but he's not actually reporting, to my knowledge. He is an invited guest of the World Economic Forum. I've not come across any other Canadian journalists here at all. 
uh, which is, I believe, noteworthy given that our Deputy Prime Minister, who is a trustee here, is speaking, and given that Justin Trudeau is all uh, hot for the Great Reset and loves the stuff they talk about here. So I think it's a great shame that Canadian journalists are not here. But at the same time, I also don't think they'd be covering the story the right way anyway. There was this, I'll, I'll close with this, because I, in that press conference this morning about the metaverse or whatever, uh, there was another press conference later on that was taking place that was about uh, public-private philanthropic partnerships. And the first question was from a, a Danish journalist, and I don't mean she writes about Danishes. Uh, she writes in Denmark and is Danish, which uh, probably makes her work a lot less interesting than if she wrote about Danishes. But nevertheless, uh, the Danish journalist uh, was there, and her question was a congratulations. She was congratulating them on all their work doing this and what they were doing, and then at the end of it, the moderator had to be like, do you, ask, do you have a question? And the woman just quickly came up with a question about Islamic philanthropy or something like that. But like she, she, the, the journalists were literally cheering them on. There was no holding truth to power, uh, none of that. So I think that's why it's so important, not just for Canada, but I'll say globally, to have True North here. I met uh, an independent journalist from Japan who is a, a huge fan of our work, and I, I'm so grateful for it. And I was recording a video about something today, and this Indian gentleman who is a delegate here, he's got his white badge, uh, was listening in on me recording. And at the end of it, he says, you're breaking down the caste system. Good for you, which I actually think was a bit of an amusing story, but one that I, I'm quite humbled by, that uh, even people that are in this world and in this ecosystem find a little bit of value in us pushing back against the prevailing narrative. So it's not cheap to come here. Flights to Switzerland are not cheap. The Airbnb that my videographer and I are staying at is not cheap. Food costs are not cheap. Uh, we're doing everything as austerely as we can uh, and no crickets yet. Uh, so we haven't devolved to that. But if you can support our work, please do at donate.tnc.news. And if you like this show, I might do another one tomorrow night. So let us know in the comments if we should do another Davos edition of The Andrew Lawton Show tomorrow. Uh, but uh, regardless, we'll have lots more coverage on True North throughout the day as the week goes on. So thank you so much for tuning in. Again, that link is donate.dnc.news. From Davos, this is Andrew Lawton and The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.